for decades, people, tomes have been written about market psychology and the things that happen uh, in bull runs and in bear markets and what that does to investors. But we've never actually been able to prove that beyond just the outcomes technically and the few things we can see fundamentally. But on-chain is literally showing strong hands buying the dip. You know, it's showing weak hands getting flushed out in a sell-off. And so we get a way to prove theories that we've, you know, believed to be true for many decades, now seeing it in this kind of... In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I'm joined by TXMC, on-chain analyst at Glassnode. We discuss the value of on-chain data and the uniqueness of being able to analyze the fundamentals that drive sentiment and market participant behavior. In this innovative asset class, with on-chain data, one can see the true supply and demand dynamics of Bitcoin, creating opportunities unlike that of traditional markets. If you're looking to better understand the fundamental drivers in Bitcoin, then join us and listen in. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. Thanks everyone for joining today. I've got a, um, should be a very fun conversation with Tex or TXMC as you might find him on Twitter. Um, he works as an on-chain analyst at Glassnode, uh, has done some great work along with a few of his buddies. So uh, Tex, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself maybe how you came to this space, and then we'll, we'll kick it off from there. Hey, Kane. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to chat about Bitcoin with you. Um, I have been an on-chain analyst now for just a few months. I didn't know that on-chain analysts uh, were a thing. I didn't know on-chain data existed, really, until uh, the beginning of this year. And it's consumed my thought processes and my interests. And now I find myself with a career doing this. So it's all very exciting. Um, I found Bitcoin. Well, you know, I've entered and left the Bitcoin market a few times over the years. You know, I bought some in 2014 uh, and sold it within a week. Uh, I did the same thing in 2018. Uh, and both times I didn't understand the asset that I was investing in. I didn't understand why I would prefer that to fiat investments or really what made money good money. And so there were I had a there was a big gap in my just general understanding at the time. And so I just saw it as a volatile trade and I got out of it quickly and I made nothing from it. And then last year, after everything that we went through, you know, all of the changes to the economic system and the record amount of money that was added to the supply and everything that's going on with, with uh, COVID and everything, I, I started to take a hard look at how I was preparing for my own financial future. You know, I'm, I'm a father of a seven-year-old and I, it's, it's, you know, I need to think about these things. And I realized I hadn't been, I hadn't been investing in myself and my knowledge and my family's future security. And that is really what led me to Bitcoin. And I, I started in, you know, I had a friend of mine who's very passionate about just the crypto space in general. He's passionate about some other projects that have some interesting utility as well. But when it comes to money, Bitcoin is really the focus. Uh, it's really the thing that exhibits the most 
pristine properties of sound money and a store of value. And when he got me hyped about those things, it just it just clicked. And then I started reading about proof of work, started reading about how the Bitcoin protocol issues coins and its deterministic issuance rate and just how all of the little cogs work as much as I can. And I, I don't know, it's consumed me. I've, I found it fascinating. And to me, uh, it's at this stage, I think it is the most important trade that can be made is a, a bet on Bitcoin. And so I devote the majority of my personal time now to learning about it and sharing that with others. I think that's great. And I think that's common for probably most of us. That's how we get here. At some point along the way, in the last five, 10 years, three years, whatever it may be, you started to question what is money. For me personally, it was arriving at it a number of years ago, realizing that money had no value. Uh, money could be anything. Uh, kids, it's baseball cards, it's candy. Uh, for adults, it's, it's cars, boats, houses, whatever, stocks. Uh, but then then Bitcoin comes along and it's truly this thing that that became money because people believed in it and believed that it was a better money than kind of what we were seeing cause problems, not only here uh, in America, but across the world. And so it gave um, kind of those that maybe uh, don't have as much the opportunity to participate in a way that the current financial system didn't. For those that maybe don't know what on-chain analytics is or what it what it's about, how would you break that down just very simply? On-chain analytics is what? So uh, on-chain analytics is the study of the immutable ledger that is the record of all Bitcoin's transactions and the holders that take part in those transactions. It has a permanent history of all activity that's ever taken place on the Bitcoin protocol. It's the ledger that every node downloads when it turns on. And that within that contains uh, all of the activity that's ever taken place. And we can begin to peel it open and assign different market forces to different behaviors in the ledger. And by doing that, it allows us to really begin to build out a fundamental framework for the behaviors of Bitcoin's market participants. And it gives us a level of transparency to that data, to that, to the, those goings on uh, that traditional finance just simply is not capable of. So it's a very exciting field and it's still very new, I would say at this point, it's only seriously been developing for a couple of years now. So there's a lot of potential for us to take this uh, in, in a lot of different directions. A couple of words there, or, or one in particular that that some people may know, they're familiar with the space, others that aren't as familiar, uh, kind of our network of clients that may not know it as well as that point of being immutable, meaning it's a record, it's a ledger that can't be changed. And, and once that happens, it's forever there. Um, that's something, if you look at the way our money works today is the exact opposite. It is constantly changed at the whims of a few. Um, and so that's a big point. And then to me, the big benefit of, uh, if, if we relate it to something that our listeners probably know, probably have heard for 10, 20, 30 years is fundamental analysis. So they're looking for those fundamental drivers of businesses, economies, and uh, you know business cycles. Um, that's supply and demand. 
And with on-chain, you get direct insight, undistorted insight into supply and demand in Bitcoin. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's fair. Uh, and it's, it's really some of the most exciting parts of what we have right now at our disposal. You know, some of the information we can see, yes, we can see transactions. We can see how much Bitcoin is in those transactions, the amount of volume moving hands minute by minute, day by day. We can also see profit and loss ratios, both of the transactions themselves and of standing supply. We can see how long ago it was acquired and using some clustering methods that we have at Glassnode, we can even identify individuals on chain, which could be a single person. It could be an institution and they are pseudonymous. We don't know them individually uh, in an identifiable way, but we can profile them. And in the aggregate, we can start to see behaviors of certain groups of investors based on how much supply they own or when they've entered the market or their tendency to sell or hold. And we can begin to build out a lot of behavioral profiles and trend those over time. And you simply cannot do that in traditional finance in any way. Right, right. And so that that demystifies that myth that Bitcoin is for drug dealers because it's anonymous. It's exactly the opposite. If there hundred percent the opposite. Yeah. If there was one money that you wanted to do uh, fraudulent or drug dealing transactions, I, I kind of feel like it would be paper dollars and I would never want to get close to Bitcoin. Exactly. Exactly. And there's been a couple of cases just this year where, uh, you know, federal authorities were able to track down some bad actors because they dealt in Bitcoin like fools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the, the pipeline issue. Yeah. Uh, that pipeline. was a big one. I mean, they solved that case in a matter of weeks or days where mm -hmm. it might've taken months or years with no access to Bitcoin. Um, so we've got all that data there. So I'm a, I'm a big technical analysis guy. I'm a proponent of price, love price because price tells you everything before the news. So now with this new, new tool, where if player A, even if we don't know he, who he is, but comes out with a news headline that says one thing, but actions on the chain do another, that's that proof. That's that authenticity. You can distort price, but you can't distort supply and demand. Am I reading that correct? That's true. That's true. And, you know, the behaviors on chain can be complex. You know, this is a, a, growing technology. There are increasingly sophisticated ways to buy and sell Bitcoin and the way that those pieces of software interact with the protocol. So you can try to obfuscate what you're doing, but in the aggregate at scale with an asset that is a trillion dollars at this point, uh, there's no way to hide the supply and demand dynamics that are driving the market as a whole, a big picture macro scale. You know, in the short term, yes, price could be affected by a, numer a number of technical factors. There is a derivatives market, which isn't on chain, but we do have a lot of transparency there as well. We can see the funding rate. We can see the amount of leverage. We can watch open interest minute by minute changing. We can see the liquidations. And so even there, it's hard to hide the activity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really exciting because it, it, it gives us a, a, a level of confidence about our investment that's hard to find in other asset classes uh, because, you know, you, you, you have that 
transparency to the behaviors inside the protocol that just simply can't be hidden by anyone. So to that point, technical analysis, um, back in the 20s and 30s, it was tape reading. You know, reading tape, Jesse Livermore writing quotes on a board. Um, he saw them first, everybody saw them second and third. Uh, you get that feel with technical analysis, same thing. You get that feel as a pricing mechanism and, and how those prices uh, react. As the world has moved more electronic, you've got algorithms, every bank's looking at the same thing. I mean, I've seen guys post, some bigger name guys post these charts and, and whatnot, and I'll literally flip to the book, the, the technical analysis Bible, and pull out what they're posting. So they're kind of reusing what we already know. But it does seem to work because the, the market is smaller, uh, the emotions still exist, but it hasn't been distorted by banks. So uh, banks, hedge funds, all those guys, but those guys are pouring in and you're seeing some of these reliable signals change. Does that mess up the underlying data? Is that a problem? How do you avoid kind of backfitting? And how do you know with on-chain that you're getting that pure data that maybe wasn't as distorted in years past. Is that something you guys deal with or am I over overthinking that? We deal with it in some ways. Um, it isn't as widespread, I, I think, but there's there's certain aspects or certain um, you know metric classes that are more prone to maybe short-term, uh, I guess, uncertainty for lack of a word. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those things include like exchange flows. You know, those kinds of things can be A, manipulated and also misleading. And mm -hmm. so, you know, but that comes with the nuance of being involved in on-chain and just kind of understanding those things. And, you know, that's, you, you won't know that going in, right? But that's where folks like myself, it's incumbent upon us as we, as educators and, and sharers of this information, disseminating our analysis, it's incumbent upon us to make the, the consumers of this data aware that things like an exchange flow, for example, could be manipulated by someone trying to, you know, create a certain kind of outcome. But over time, you know, the further away you get from that, you know, within a matter of days, that data tends to settle. And we have, you know, a world, for example, at Glassnode, we have a world-class data science team and they're always modifying their algorithms that, that pick up these behaviors. And so mm -hmm. over time, we just continue to get better at those things. And I don't have a, a concern at this time that we're heading towards any you know, possible future where a lot of this data becomes irrelevant. I, I don't think that's a, that's a concern. Yeah. And I, I don't think it would, but is there a constant need to adjust because the market is growing so fast and you're getting so mm -hmm. many different participants that some of them coming in with large numbers, whereas before, you know, when it's a smaller, more retail-ish market, uh, they don't have the same dollar flow in, which doesn't, kind of create that distortive, or maybe they just all did it all in one wallet instead of across 10. So where you're talking about creating these clusters and is that an ongoing process? Uh, so it, I don't think that that's, I don't see how that would have any issues with us. You know, I think that that's, it's part of the learning and the growth of the, you know, the asset yeah, class space. and the study of it in the space. Yeah. So I think that that's just part and parcel of being part of this, this growth journey that we're on with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just part of the, the maturation of how we interpret the data. So I, I, I don't think that that's something that would, uh, would be uh, like a headwind for on-chain's effectiveness in the future. To combat that, I think we did see some of that, if I recall, in the spring, uh, kind of leading into the migration of miners out of China. There was a lot of 
uh, interesting exchange signals kind of going in. Um, do you guys, do you use strictly on-chain data, Glassnode tools, or do you mix that with some set of tools that maybe um, historically have been used in the stock markets or just other uh, indicators and tools, or is it strictly just the supply demand data from uh, Glassnode? Uh, well, speaking for myself, I try to use as many tools as I can relevant to, you know, the analysis I'm trying to get or the narrative I'm trying to, you know, pull out of the data uh, or, or capture. So on-chain, I think, is is primarily what I look at because that is the truth, you know, that is the immutable, indisputable truth. But I like to marry that with technicals. I think that price action is very important and historical price action is always relevant in what's important is to find confluence between each of these classes, right? You know, we have technical analysis, we've got the the derivatives data, what's going on in futures, the amount of volume changing hands there and the leverage in addition to the underlying supply and demand and the profit taking levels we're seeing on chain. All of those things together, you know, different tools for different jobs, but generally speaking, you want to look for confluence between as many factors as you can to, to get an accurate assessment. And some of that just, just kind of hit me. One of the things with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, one could argue at this point, they're primarily just trading vehicles. Maybe from this data that's coming off the chain and this insight and the analytics, does that possibly lead us into a future where that data can be used for better products since we know that data kind of drives the world better products meaning like not just trade oriented but is there something that that could lead to for for new companies that haven't even been thought of yet to be built off that data i think it's certainly viable uh, you know because the thing that i've found interesting with on chain in the first place was that you know for for decades people homes have been written about market psychology and the things that happen uh, in bull runs and in bear markets and what that does to investors. But we've never actually been able to prove that beyond just the outcomes technically and the few things we can see fundamentally. But on-chain is literally showing strong hands buying the dip. You know, it's showing weak hands getting flushed out in a sell-off. And so we get a way to prove theories that we've, you know, believed to be true for many decades, now seeing it in this kind of new pristine supply and demand based asset that we have right now. It, it's very exciting. So I think it's certainly possible in the future, this data could lead to more insights uh, it, from a behavioral economic standpoint, if no, if no other. But uh, just to kind of couple that with another idea that I have generally about Bitcoin is that I I don't always know how many uh, different kinds of innovations and things Bitcoin itself should try to create, you know, because it's mm -hmm. such it solves so many issues being a store of value and a and a and sound money on its own that I, I I also I hesitate to try to assign too many other potentials to it because I feel like that one is important, so important, you know, that I, I don't mm -hmm. think too much about what else it could be capable for. But it's it is interesting. And it does solve the biggest problem. Um right. Honestly, the world doesn't need another form of money, another form of means to pay somebody, at least not in the developed world. There's 10 other that 
or easier, faster, and in some cases, depending on the uh, supply demand dynamics in the market, cheaper. Um, that's just truth. Like, uh, but for lesser developed countries, lesser developed people in lesser developed worlds, this is the best. And so, in here in the developed world, the problem is there is no savings mechanism. It's zero. Put your cash in the bank, you get no rate of return because of printing, because of inflation. Negative and, real yields. Yeah. You every 10, every decade, you lose 15, 25% at minimum if it just sits there. So it solves that savings mechanism, gives you that store of value. And, and I really think for me, that's the biggest difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, crypto as a whole. It's Bitcoin solves that savings problem and the rest of them are connectors and integrators in the way that APIs were kind of post 2005, six, seven, and, and will allow us to transact better, communicate better. And they may or may not deliver money, but they will allow better connections for that data. Those feeds, like what you guys look at. Um, I agree. And so what, you know, I think a lot of those projects don't even need to be tokenized. You know, a lot of these projects are just software innovations, yeah. uh, but they're tokenized as part of the crypto economy for, for capital raising and whatever. But uh, no, I completely agree. I think Bitcoin itself solves the greatest problem. And many of these other projects may have a utility, but they don't need to have a money, a monetary utility. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you hit on that there, maybe a product that, that you can get credit for, for creating is that top and bottom call, um, based on the, 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 um, actions that you see that we've kind of maybe talked about for a hundred years, but couldn't put our finger on it. Um, but that's a good segue into kind of one thing that, that seems to be drastically different between the traditional market and the crypto market. And that is, the uh, famous, is this a bull or a bear market? Um, historically, traditionally in the equities market and traditional markets, um, a decline of greater than 20% is a bear market. Historically, traditionally in traditional markets, when uh, you make lower highs and lower lows, that's a sign of a bear market. There's not, they generally last six months to a year. Um, bull markets last a few years. Uh, so it's just that two steps forward, one step back. And in traditional markets, when you take that one step back there, everybody's just like, hey, it's a bear market. In Bitcoin markets, like hodlers are like, this is when I'm stacking. But people that maybe aren't as versed in it are like, it's a bear market. I'm running for the hills. Um, does, how, do you, how do you look at that? And, and is that a fair assessment? Um, do bull and bear markets exist? in uh, Bitcoin and crypto markets, because in Bitcoin in particular, there's a heavy lean to just hodl regardless. Right, there is. Uh, and that that bias exists with a certain percentage of the participants, right? And there's obviously many more that get flushed out every time there's a 50% or more correction, which is the nature of an exponentially growing asset that started at zero. Hey, look so at that's Amazon. Something it it was right. 95% the first couple of years, multiple times, 40% every year mm -hmm. for 20 years. Yeah. It, it takes a while for it to start stabilizing. You have to have a, you have to reach a certain level of capital influx before these corrections begin to diminish just by the nature of the, of the inertia of the market. 
But to answer your question, there are bull and bear cycles in Bitcoin. There's a lot of, you know, lively discussion about the causes of those cycles, whether they're based on the having or whether they're based on macro factors or if it's just a condensed version of Ray Dalio's cycles. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but th there's a lot of debate, right? But generally, on-chain, we can see a profile that exists from a bull market to a bear market. And it doesn't always correlate exactly with what's happening in the price on that given day or week. So it's based on supply and demand, as we spoke about before. So the, the primary effects of being in a bull market it, it As we reach previous all-time highs, volume increases. We see this on chain. We see transfer volume increasing, new buyers approaching the market, and we see older coins that have been sitting for a long period of time begin to be sold into market strength. We can see this across a bunch of different metrics, but I'm just describing the forces and how we how we view them. Right. So you can see old coins being distributed into market strength and sold to younger hands. And eventually it reaches a point where they create an oversupply and we can see the volume begin to diminish as the ready buyers are extinguished, as they're satisfied. And eventually all you have left uh, are the holders and you see volume diminish and we reach these bear periods. It's, it's, it's not always correlative to a certain percentage of price drop. I don't subscribe to it needs to be 50%, it needs to be 75% or whatever. Bitcoin has had a couple of 80% corrections. This year we had a roughly 50% correction. So the, the size of them can vary. Over time, they've been getting slightly smaller, but they still can be significant. A 50% correction would scare most people. But what we have when we hit you know, when we have a massive sell-off like we had in the middle of May, what we began to see on chain after the initial sell-off, uh, I think it ended around May 20th, was really the bottom of the panic portion of the sell-off. It was that big day where we hit 30 and like mm -hmm. 10,000 points in about yes. four minutes. Yep. Yeah, we had a huge $10,000 Darth Maul-looking doom candle uh, on the daily chart. And that day, there was a there were a bunch of liquidations in the futures market, and there were a bunch of new investors that got scared out of the market. By this point, the older coins that were looking to make profit, those who were long-term holders who were the smart money that were realizing gains, they had already taken their money and had already you know been sitting on the sidelines. These were just we could see on chain the age of the coins moving were very young which means that it was traders and newer investors changing hands over and over again. And the older participants were less active. So when we see these behaviors, that is telling us that we're, we're reaching the end of a bullish period. All of the profit-taking has expired, newer hand volume is declining, and that can usually signal the end of a bull period. And so that's kind of what we had in the spring, and it, and it, it ended in late May, like I was talking about. And what we see from that moment on, on chain, are all of these different cohorts of users. We break people up in a few different ways, either by the amount of time that they have been in the protocol, whether they're a long-term holder or not. We also break them up by how often they sell, whether they are an illiquid or not selling type of entity or not. And we break people up by the amount of supply they own. So we have all these different cohorts. 
And each one of these profiles began net accumulation in late May and early June. We see this on chain. We see the amount of coins that they own slowly increasing. The sell-off stops. Volume reduces dramatically. And at that point, all that's left in the market are the long-term investors and the smart money who understand the asset, who remain confident in it, and who see a value price. So you can witness these behaviors across a suite of metrics. And these are the things that we can't see in traditional finance. This is the piece that is missing from what defines a bull or a bear market in a U.S. equities market, for example, is that we can't see actual accumulation occurring by these various profiled cohorts on chain. That's what we see in Bitcoin. And we saw it all summer long. And folks like myself and other on-chain analysts were able to confidently assess the market and say, we're seeing accumulation. Price is going sideways. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty. There's a lot of negative news. But we don't continue to sell off. And everyone important to the long-term health of the market is growing their, their stacks. So those kinds of Behaviors are what we look at and how we determine whether the market is looking strong, whether it's looking weak. It's all based on the, the confidence of the holders underneath the price itself. I hope that made but, sense. Yeah, that made great sense. And it actually reminded me of a few things just from the traditional markets. Again, if we're trying to connect the dots for people that maybe don't know as much about Bitcoin or crypto or don't know anything about on-chain, trying to connect it to things that we know. Um, and early on... Before I even started, uh, if you kind of got into day trading or whatnot, there are level two and level three quotes. It's very similar to on-chain. Mm -hmm. Guys like Citadel that are buying the trade flow from Robinhood and the bigger firms, they're using that as their on-chain, but it's only available to them because they have enough capital to pay for it. I think they buy it from E-Trade. They buy it from most of the retail platforms. Always have. Um that's their own chain available to those few silos. The beauty is in this new financial system, this new financial rails, everybody has the same ability to participate mm -hmm. uh, because you could get access to level three um, at a steep price. And then once a lot of people kind of got to level three, kind of 2006, seven, eight, they moved to dark pools. They got approval from the SEC and all these guys. If I place these trades, people are going to read my tracks in the market, which is exactly what tape reading was in the 1920s, which is another form of on-chain analytics. So it kind of helped me there just listening to that. Um, I, I already liked on-chain. I don't know a ton about it. I know a little bit, just enough to kind of like follow it around and look at the charts and make reads based on what I know from the 20s, the 30s the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s uh, for those things I just mentioned. Um, and so that, I think, gives a good picture for people that don't, maybe it's just not their thing, but they kind of want to know what it is. The other point um, is a great saying, I think it was JP Morgan, um, you know, markets fall when the, when the last buyer is bought. Mm -hmm. Bottoms start when the last seller has sold. Yeah. And actually, that may not have been J.P. Morgan. I don't remember who it was. Sell-off ends when the marginal seller has been exhausted. Yeah. And so you guys can see that. Yes. And in traditional markets at this point, that's basically been distorted. 
it's very yeah. hard for the normal human to kind of come in if you're not a hedge fund or a bank desk or something like that and see that. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Bitcoin does have an order book and it has level two and all those kinds of, you know, traditional market tools that you would use for active trading. It has that certainly. Uh, but to your point, it has a complementary layer of transparency. I mean, we're talking about radically transparent access to the underlying investor behavior of this asset. And it's it's something you can see in the aggregate happening. We can compare it to previous markets and get, and get a sense of the scale of the behavior and whether or not it matches the trend of what a previous bull market looks like. And we, we, have, we can profile it and show it in a number of ways. And I think that to an earlier point you asked about just kind of the way the market will evolve over time, I think that what a bull market looks like is also a candidate to change as we see these levels of inflows coming in. It seems some of the signatures we're noticing very recently, it seems like there's a lot of large inflows happening on chain. Just the, the volume of money settled each day is going up. And so it, it, it certainly speaks to a, a new level of capital that's coming in here. It's quiet so far. We haven't heard any announcements yet. I imagine those are probably not too yep, far yep, away. Yep. But I think that the, the what a market looks like could change in the future. But the exciting thing is we will see all of that and we can create a new profile for it. You know, and it's interesting. It just reminded me a couple of weeks ago, one of your um, buddies and colleagues, and we're in just a chat, you're in there. And um, he made a statement effectively that as the money grows, we're seeing different moves. And I was like, but isn't that obvious? Like that's just naturally how it happens in, in growth. And he's like, yeah, but not everybody kind of puts two and two together. So I laugh because it sounds very profound. And it is when a lot of people don't do this for their day job, um, read headlines, kind of make assumptions based on things they may or may not see. Um, and they hear something like, wow, light bulb moment. But when you think about it, that's just natural growth of a market. And I think for me, that's like, the most bullish case on the space in general to all the naysayers like Jamie Diamond's back at it again. Um, you know, he has some other reasons that he's probably doing that, but mm -hmm. for those, for those groups that say, Oh, this will never happen. I kind of feel like it's the same people that mocked the internet in the mid nineties. I agree. And Bitcoin's not going anywhere. I mean, I, I don't I don't have to get on a pulpit and convince you of that, uh, I think, at this point. But it, there, people who think that Bitcoin is just going to vanish into the night have no understanding of the scale of this thing at this point and the amount of real-world investment that has been put into its success. It's not going anywhere. And, and, and it's I've still heard, early. Yeah, it's still early, right? Uh, if you look at the chart that says, I think there's 300 million crypto users today. And there's 4.6 billion internet users. So mm -hmm. if you, it's a chart, you've seen it. Uh, when you plot the two together, it puts you at about 1997 in relative terms of the internet. Um, and if you, if you nerd out on this and you go and try to really understand Bitcoin, you see all that it is, is the TCP IP stack rebuilt mm -hmm. with security and better connectivity. That and, and for those that don't know, that is when you get on the internet, that's what drives everything. That's the stack, the layers that things are built on top of. And Bitcoin is that base layer. And we're just scratching the surface of like layer two where applications are coming. And then there'll be three and so on and so forth. 
and from just a monetary perspective, uh, have you have you read Layered Money? I'm in the middle of reading it right now, actually. Phenomenal. Yes, great book. Just the graphic of the the triangle and the way that he breaks it down. I mean, he takes three or four hundred years and compresses it into like 120 pages that you can read. How he got that book under 200 pages is absolutely mind blowing. It's very concise and very readable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is Twitter for readers. Um, you know, it's, it could easily have been a 450 page book that nobody made it through. You know, he could probably teach Ray Dalio a few things. Now Ray and his works make it extremely simple, but you, it's going to take you a month or two to get through it. So one, one chart, um, let's see if I can share it here. We chatted on, and for me, uh, this chart here, the, the long-term holder profit loss ratio, it was real eye-opener because when I saw it, and I've, I've seen it a couple of times before, or maybe I just subliminally kind of put the lines exactly where you did. Um, but my question here is either people just, the, some of the bigger names in the space were either disingenuous didn't know what they were looking at or just didn't care because their time frame was different, which is probably a part of it. But w- from a wealth management perspective and when you're investing people's money and when, uh, when people are investing money, time frames matter because most people aren't just, they don't have a never ending cash stash that they, they can go to. So if they put money in something, there's some kind of time frame that's going to make them pull it out or, or use it for something else other than investing. And so when you look at this chart, um, you've kind of marked it up with some purple stars right at basically where tops or right near where tops are. Is that something that maybe in, in March, April, May was overlooked or was it just ignored because their time frame for different, the people that post some of these things. It's something I've been thinking about. I don't think that it's a matter of being ignored. I think to be fair to on change in general, um, it's a very small community of folks that a have access to this data in the first place. You can get access to it, but there's many people who haven't taken the steps to get access to it. Um, there are even fewer who, can interpret it on uh, like in a, you know, a intermediate level. And there are even fewer than who create new views of those metrics and try to break them down, uh, which is what myself and my colleagues at Glassnode are doing. And so I think that just to be. And you guys do be, phenomenal work just to like be clear on that. Thanks. No. Yeah. yeah. I think that that was what got ex- me excited about working with them in general is I, I feel like they're really top shelf in this industry when it comes to the quality of their insights and their data and the reliability of it. Uh, but but this particular um, chart here was not something that we were looking at as a group, as a group of on-chain analysts, our community. Uh, we weren't really looking at the profit and loss of long-term holders uh, earlier this year. You know, I, I there were a lot of us that were still learning how the concept of long-term holder is even measured by Glassnode. And I, I understand it now as, a, as I've been doing this for months. Uh, but I, I think that this was, this was something that I just randomly, it was a ratio I just randomly thought to try uh, a few weeks ago. And when it's one of those things where you put it and you, you line it up with the price chart and you just go, holy man, this looks really <laughs> interesting. And I, it's, 
it's taken me a while. I had to sit and digest it about what it really, what I think it means. Um, and, and really, it's just showing you the level of profitability of people who hold their coins and how it relates to the price appreciation we see in bull markets and subsequently how quickly that profitability falls off after you reach the market peak. And I, I, I just found it interesting because I don't necessarily know that it's a cheat code to the market, but I do think that it's a really clear way to delineate when the euphoric part of a bull top is probably over with, rather than simply being, you know, a retrace for the next leg up. Because I, I and th- those create different profiles. Where what I see is like that bull and bear battle. When you look at this, you're like, that's yeah, clearly with where all my little funny lines on the chart were. And so if I was, if I, if my time preference required that I, I take some money off or put some money on, this marries with some of the traditional tools that we do very well. And that, that's really why I had the question is like, did, did, were people just not aware or, because if you go back to kind of February, March, um, pre this last peak, if you just looked at the chatter amongst the risk-free trade, you can get 40% a year, no risk. And you've traded in any other market. You kind of like, eh, wait, like nothing is, nothing in the markets is risk-free, but we'll just see. And then, you know, three, four months later, it comes online. It's very painful to, for those people that bought post 50,000. Now here we are six months later, it's come back. I think that speaks to uh, the growth in the industry most people are hodlers. Uh, there's a lot of other macro factors that drive that. But um, when I saw this chart, I was just like, whoa, that's, that's a useful tool in conjunction with other things. It doesn't tell you, hey, get out. Hey, get in. But when you marry it with some of the other stuff, um, it, yeah. it does paint a good picture. Yeah, I think the reason, you know, one of the reasons why it, it seems to have such a high signal in correlation to price and where we are in, you know, bull bear phases uh, is because it this is looking at the longest holders on chain. These are people who have held their coins on average for at least five months, which based on our analysis makes them very statistically unlikely to sell. And so we create this group that we call long-term holders. We follow them over time. And Mm-hmm. Their profitability is strongly correlated, obviously, to price going up and creating new highs. It suddenly puts a bunch of them into profit. That's a that's an understandable relationship between those two things. But the important thing is that when people are in profit, it makes them a lot. It makes it makes holding a lot more likely. And when they're in loss, when they're smart money and they're in loss, they tend to be accumulating. What what you're saying is exactly what we see every single day. Every single month, we being people in wealth management industry, an industry that's been around for hundreds of years. And I think what we're seeing is if, if Bitcoin and crypto is this new financial market, these new rails, that same emotional bias carries over. When you are up big on a position, you have all the confidence in the world, you, you stick with it. When you bought and two days later, it's down 30%, you punt that thing just out of like, well, I'm the, I am that last buyer. You know, I'm the last buyer that bought. And then when you come in and you're new and you buy and two days later, you're up 30%. You're like, dude, I know how to trade Bitcoin like no other. 
Like I'm just going to sit in my bedroom and do this all day. Mm-hmm. And it creates sort of a false sense of confidence. Um, now, depending on how low your first buy was, it, it's a confidence that carries on, but it drives people to like learn more. I think that's the thing that we're, uh, Bitcoiners say, if you really want to understand it, put money in it. And, and once you put money into Bitcoin and you start getting curious, that's when you really come to understand it. And, you know, just like that's why 401ks work so well, because you and I can't buy and sell it. Now we can, but there's rules around timing. And if you do too many times, you get penalty box. Believe me, I've done it. Um, but it works because you put money in every single month, twice a month when you get paid and it sits there for 20 or 30 years. So it's effectively 401k is nothing but a hodler. And then when it comes time that you don't have an income, so you have to take money from somewhere, there's this stack. There's this hodl stack of 401k equities. Um, and so when I look at this chart, it just, it, encompasses all those things and so then really the question isn't should i buy bitcoin when should i bet bitcoin it's more like what is my cash flow need what excess cash do i have and right now does it make sense or should i wait a little bit now trying to time the market for every little ebb and flow it's going to hurt you're going to wake up three years from now you're going to have 0.0015 bitcoin and bitcoin's going to have tripled i just thought it was a phenomenal chart yeah, it's and it's I hard think, to explain, I think, because it, you know, it's it's just simple profit and loss, you know. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's just correlated with price. Price is going up, the the standing that, profit level goes up. But I think it's also a barometer for confidence because we have this layer of these people are specifically long-term holders. This isn't just profit and loss of Bitcoin as a whole. Uh, that would be a, that would not provide this kind of signal. These are specifically the smart money. These are specifically people who buy and hold long term, and you can see when they're in high levels of profit versus not, and understanding that they are the smart money and that they tend to buy at the right time and sell at the right time historically. You can kind of use this as a barometer for what's the confidence level of the hodlers. You know, if they if if they're in accumulation, their confidence about the market right now is low, and maybe this is where I should be considering stacking as well. If they're also in stack mode, you know, but if they're in high profit, you know, that maybe this is a, maybe this is a profit taking area. Maybe this is somewhere where this is not a a risk on part of the trade in this moment here. So I think that it can be a good barometer in that regard. And also, just hearing you say that made me realize it also is effectively an adoption curve because. If I'm new to Bitcoin and I put money in today and in six months, I'm still here. Most likely, I didn't just put it in there and forget about it. And there's a subset of people that do that. Um, But I've been for the last six months trying to truly understand what the heck is this thing, Bitcoin, that I just put some money into. And and as that journey goes on, you face it, I face it, everybody's faced it. You put more money into it. And then it just becomes the Bitcoin standard, as they would say. And uh, so in some regards, you know, I guess if you took the squiggly lines out, it's that adoption curve that you see uh, same. We were talking a minute ago about the user chart, um, that user adoption. So anyways, good chart, great post. You know, every investor has to learn their style. Uh, are they short-term? Are they long-term? Are they a swing trader? Are they a day trader? 
there is no right or wrong style. It's the disconnect comes when you pick someone else's style that doesn't fit your emotional ability to kind of sit and let your trades work out uh, mm -hmm. or your investments work out. Um, are there any, I like to have a core set of tools in traditional markets that even in, in, in crypto markets that I come back to when I get lost or I'm chasing a narrative or I'm have wandered into a style that's not really mine. Are there a, a certain set of tools from an on-chain perspective that you reliably come back to and say, okay, this is the trend. I may not pick the high, I may not pick the low, but the trend is up. The trend for this period is down because of these couple of things that I see, or do you even look at it that way? So I, I don't look at it fully that way. There are some there are definitely um, some metrics that I like more than others, and I can talk about a couple of those. But the generally my approach is to see the the suite of tools at my disposal as just a, as a as an as a total toolbox, and it's about right tool, right job, right time frame. That's something that uh, we say at Glassnode. Checkmate, my colleague and I say this a lot. Right tool, right time frame, right job. I said those in a different order, but it's it's a it's really about what's going on in the in the network today. I'm usually pretty plugged into those things since this is part of my life, and you know sometimes at different times of the year, different metrics have more relevance than others. You know, earlier this summer when China banned industrial mining, I was heavily focused on the hash rate and the activity of the miners and what I thought they were doing and the machines coming offline and how I thought that might affect the selling pressure on the network. Some of them might need to sell in order to, you know, fund their migration to another country and set up shop. So that's just an example of how I would be focused on a certain type of, of metrics based on the, the, the situation. But generally, whenever I'm not sure what's going on and I'm trying to get an idea of, you know, if I've been away from Bitcoin for a few days, I, I come back. There's a couple of charts that we have that show the distribution of supply by their age. They're called the HODL waves. And they, it's this really beautiful kind of rainbow distribution of the supply based on how old they are. And, you know, when a coin gets moved, when it's spent and another person buys it, on the, the ledger, its lifespan gets reset to zero. And it starts over as a new coin owned by a new owner. And when we look at the distribution of supply and we see bursts of activity among younger coins, like 24-hour and one-day coins spiking for a period of time. That usually means some other coins that existed in an older age bracket were spent. And so by doing a little bit of analysis and checking each of the groups, you can see where they came from, which tells you when they bought. You can see how much was moved, which gives you an idea of the size of that holder. And then that gives me an idea of where else to go look. What other things to go track down? Do I think this was a big spender? Do I think this was a miner? What was going on in this point of time? And so I, I always come back ultimately to supply and demand because that is really the underpinning of all of the eventual outcomes for Bitcoin are those two forces playing with each other. Economics 101. Keep it simple. And I think that's a great um, ending there because what it really does is say, hey, on-chain analytics might be a new industry, uh, a new thing, but at the end of the day, it's just measuring the fundamentals of the underlying system. 
the fundamentals of why, where, and how the money in this system is flowing. Exactly, exactly. It, it comes down to those two forces. And now with this newfound transparency uh, and this immutable ledger that we can trust not to shift underneath us, because of these things, we now have unfettered access to the long-term behavior of all of these different cohorts on chain. And we can have just an intimate knowledge of Bitcoin uh, based on these very simple forces that govern all markets. We can understand them at a level that has never existed before. And so it should give anyone who's interested in investing in Bitcoin who, or who's just curious about it a lot of confidence and, and that we can, we can know for a, almost a certainty just how, uh, how much the network is growing, how much it's being adopted, and what the confidence level of those holders currently is based on their behaviors. It's very exciting. It is, Tex. Uh, I think I'm going to run out and watch a few videos to, to get more well-versed. But uh, for those listeners out there that do have an interest in, in maybe following you or uh, finding out more about on-chain analytics, where can they look? So the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at TXMC Trades, T-R-A-D-E-S. I post a ton of observations. I have links in my bio to my YouTube channel. Alpha Beta Soup, where I regularly post videos breaking down Bitcoin with on-chain analysis. Uh, and also Glassnode is glassnode.com is my employer. That's where we have all of our metrics. And uh, that's where you can learn about how each of them work and really start to unpack them and get familiar with this space. So Twitter is probably the best way to reach out to me. And all the links to those wonderful places are in my bio. Perfect. Well, hey, I really appreciate the uh, conversation today. It was very good. I think you shed a lot of light to myself, hopefully to the listeners, and I uh, hope, hope you enjoyed it as well. I had a great time chatting with you. I'd love to do this again. And um, yeah, just really excited for the future of Bitcoin. Perfect. We'll do it again. Thanks. Excellent, Kane. Thank you.